Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. I'm really happy to introduce our next speaker, uh, Professor Alexis Comer of the University of California at San Diego with her presentation of base editing in practice. Alexis received her degree from, in chemistry from the University of California, Berkeley in 2008. And she then joined the lab of Jacqueline Barton at the California Institute of Technology for her doctoral studies. While at Caltech, she worked as an NSF graduate research fellow on the design, synthesis, and study of DNA mismatch binding metal complexes receiving her PhD in 2014. Following this, she joined David Lewis Laboratory as Ruth Kirstein, NIH postdoctoral fellow, and it was during this time in this lab that she developed the derivative CRISPR-based technology, base editing. Uh, this is a game-changer technology, as it allows the programmable, direct, and irreversible chemical conversion of DNA bases without requiring DNA double-strand breaks. Following this position, Alexis joined the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of California at San Diego in 2017, where her lab develops and applies new precision genome editing techniques to the functional genomics field. Alexis's contributions in teaching, mentoring and research have been recognized through many awards and we're absolutely delighted to have her speaking here today. Um, we'll have a question and answer session after presentation, so please type any questions you've got in the questions box, which appears at the bottom of the screens, and I can pull them to Alexis at the end. So uh, over to Alexis for your presentation, thank you. Hi everyone and welcome. Um, I'm going to talk to you about some of the research that we've been using, that we've been doing where we're using precision genome editing tools to better understand human genetic variation. And so as most of you know, human genetic variation is when we compare the sequences of two people's DNA and we find that they differ. And so if the two sequences differ by just the identity of a single base pair, such as what I've shown here, this is called a single nucleotide variant or SNP, or you might have also heard it called a single nucleotide polymorphism or SNP. Um, single nucleotide variants are very common and out of all of the human genetic variants that we've identified through sequencing, about 96% of them are SNPs. And so they're very relevant to, to human genetic variation. We're very interested in, in studying them. What's more is that if we compare a variety of different individuals' genomic uh, sequences, we'll find that each person has a lot of genetic variants. Okay, so if we compare their sequences to each other, to the human reference genome, we'll find around four to five million genetic variants um, in each individual. And uh, what we're trying to understand is how these different genetic variants contribute to our health. Are they simply uh, making us uh, diverse and unique individuals, or are some of these contributing to disease and making us unhealthy? Um, and so it's very tempting to, to label them as sort of very black and white or benign versus pathogenic, as I've shown here. Um, but the reality of the situation is that over 99% of variants that we've identified actually don't have a classification yet. We don't understand them well enough to know if they're contributing to diversity or disease. Um, and the less than 1% that we have classified um, actually get put on this uh, six cat or five category scale ranging from pathogenic to benign and includes likely benign, likely pathogenic, and variants of uncertain significance or VUS. And so one thing that, that we hypothesize is that um, we're so bad at classifying these variants because each individual has a very unique combination of four to five million uh, genetic variants. And so it's this, this combination of all of these together that is going to contribute to the overall health of the individual. 
And uh, collectively, this is known as the variant interpretation problem. So out of the hundreds of millions of genetic variants that we've identified through sequencing individuals, uh, over 99% of them are unclassified, and then the less than 1% that are um, looks like this. Only about a third of those, less than 1%, do we actually, can we, we are actually classified as benign or pathogenic. And this is because our current classification system is, uh, is reliant on, on GWAS studies, so genome-wide association studies, and it's pretty much all computationally done. Um, and in order to definitively classify a variant, we actually have to have identified it in a very large number of individuals in order to have that statistical power. Um, but if we look at the genetic breakdown of these individuals whose genomes are collectively in our GWAS studies, um, it's grossly overrepresented by uh, individuals of European descent. And um, most genetic variants are very rare and population specific. And so we just don't identify them in enough individuals to classify them. And the only ones that we have are specific to European populations, not the only ones, but the vast majority of these less than 1% that have a, class, a clinical classification are specific to European populations because that's just dominating our pool of genetic variants. Um, and so this is going to drive even larger health disparities once the precision medicine field really starts to take off. Um, and so us and, and many other labs as well has been ramping up what's known as, as functional genomic studies. And uh, these are laboratory-based studies where we generate uh, cell models and animal models in which we've introduced specific genetic variants at will. And then we study how that particular variant or combination of variants perhaps uh, impacts the health of the cells. And from that, we can uh, understand how these different genetic variants will, will impact an individual. Okay. And um, the first step in order to do this is to use genome editing to introduce our genetic variants of, of interest. And, and we hope to do this in a variant agnostic manner where uh, we are introducing variants from, from all different populations equally. Okay. Um, and so the way that we introduce variants, um, or the sort of traditional way that we've done this for, for many, many years, is by using double-stranded breaks. Um, and so let's say this is our genomic DNA of interest. Um, this is where you know, there's some um, uh, base pair here, and we want to, to change the identity of that base pair to introduce a SNP. Uh, the first thing that we would do is, is chop the DNA in half with a double-stranded break uh, near the site where we're trying to introduce that SNP. And, and we do that using Cas9 because it's very easy to introduce this double-stranded break at a location of interest. Um, so in gray, I'm showing the Cas9 protein. It complexes with a piece of RNA called the guide RNA. And the first 20 nucleotides of this guide RNA that I've shown in green perfectly matches the sequence of the genomic DNA where we want to introduce our double-stranded break. And so it binds uh, through Watson-Crick-Franklin-based pairing properties and then introduces a double, or the protein, the Cas9 protein introduces a double-stranded break here. Okay, so this is known as the spacer region of the guide RNA, and then it matches the, the protospacer region in the genomic DNA. Um, and so this is, again, very easy to reprogram this um, by simply just copy-pasting this 20 base pairs in, in the genome um, to, um, to change the sequence of this guide RNA. So following introduction of our double-stranded break, the cell will then process that, that DNA damage via one of two different main pathways. Um, the first repair pathway that I've shown in, in thicker arrows here, because it's, it's very efficient and it usually dominates, um, and th these are called end joining pathways, where um, the cell is attempting to just ligate the two ends of, of the broken DNA back together. And uh, most of this time, this actually results in the original DNA sequence. So it's, it's, it does, you know, perfect re-ligation. Um, but because we still have these Cas9 guide RNA molecules in the cell, they'll rebind and re-cleave and then give us this double-stranded break again. 
And after many, many rounds of this, these end joining pathways um, eventually do become error prone and um, result in the insertion and deletion of base pairs around the site of the double-stranded break. And so these are collectively called indels. And um, you can't dictate these, these indel sequences, um, but given a particular double-stranded break introduction location, um, these sequences are typically reproducible and they depend on the sequence surrounding the double-stranded break. Um, so if you're, you know, doing genome editing at a particular location um, across many different experiments, you'll find that um, you always see the same indel sequences pop up over and over again for a given double-stranded break. Um, and so usually these outcomes are not helpful to us. So as I said, we're trying to introduce SNBs, and here we're getting insertion and deletion sequences. Um, and so that is, um, this, this other repair pathway allows us to do precision genome editing. Um, and so this is through the HDR pathway or homology-directed repair. And so this repair pathway usually uses a sister chromatid as a template um, to, to repair the double-stranded break. And um, as researchers, we introduce an exogenous piece of DNA that's sort of like a fake sister chromatid it has high homology to the sequence surrounding the double-stranded break, but we've incorporated our, our SNB of interest here. And so HDR will use this as a template and introduce our mutation of interest, giving us this precise DNA manipulation outcome. Um, and so the issue is that even though we want to just do HDR-mediated genome editing, um, these end joining pathways are, are always active and they're very efficient. And so we end up with a mixture of genome editing products. So both are, are precise um, DNA outcome that we want as well as indels. Um, and this has been a really long standing challenge in the field. I just want to take a few minutes to talk about um, a recent project that, that we worked on to, to combat this issue before I move on to base editing. But so this was uh, work done by my postdoc, Schultz Bodai, in collaboration with my colleague, Valentino Gantz. And um, we developed this method called the double tap method. And this takes advantage of these, uh, the reproducible nature of, of indels. And so what we do is um, we'll do a round of genome editing where we're trying to introduce some mutation of interest. And then um, we will sequence all the genome editing products and look at what the sequences of the most common indels are. And then we repeat the experiment, but use multiple guide RNAs this time. And so we'll, we'll include what we call the primary guide RNA. This is the same one that we were using before that matches the original genomic DNA sequence. Um, but then we have additional secondary guide RNAs. And these are going to have sequences that match um, these, these indel sequences, okay? And so now, um, within a given cell, if we're, we're doing our, our genome editing, and, and sometimes we'll get some HDR products, but when we get these particular indel sequences, we have additional Cas9 guide RNA uh, molecules in the cell that match these new sequences, so they'll rebind recleave and then we can use the same uh, HDR template to repair these double-stranded breaks and it essentially gives us a second chance at HDR and allows us to increase our HDR yields. So um, initially we tested it. I'm just going to show you a little bit of data and, and explain how it works. Um, we initially uh, tested it at this uh, MMACHC locus and so I have our, our, our protospacer sequence um, highlighted um, in, in the black. This is our, our PAM, so PAM stands for protospacer adjacent motif. Um, this is a short sequence that the Cas9 requires for binding. That always needs to be next to your protospacer. Um, and so we're going to be introducing our double-stranded break right here, and we're attempting to introduce a C to T SNV right here. So if we just use a primary guide RNA and on our donor template to introduce the C to T mutation, we get about 3% um, HDR yields shown here. Um, and if we then you know, sequence the locus and look at the sequences of the additional genome editing products, um, we see about 51% of our, our products are actually this one base pair insertion product. 
Okay, we have an insertion of a, a single A base here. So if we, we repeated the experiment and just added a secondary guide RNA that matches this one base pair insertion product, and you can see here that we actually doubled our HDR yield, which is, which is really great, especially considering we're not manipulating the cells in any way. We don't have to introduce some um, additional uh, blocking or unwanted uh, mutation um, into our, our DNA uh, sequence to, to sort of block Cas9 from rebinding or anything. Um, all we're doing is just adding a second guide RNA. Um, here is um, another locus called the RNF2 locus. And so here we're trying to introduce a G to A mutation. Um, sometimes your, your outcome, your indel outcomes aren't as clean as what I just showed on the, the, the previous slide. Um, sometimes you get um, a mixture of, of a variety of different um, indel sequences that have lower uh, introduction efficiencies. So you can see here, um, this one and two base pair deletion products are at around 10%, so much lower than the 50% that I showed on the previous slide. Um, but collectively, if we target all three of these indel sequences, um, we, can, we can get collective increases in our HDR yields. So you can see here, this is just using one secondary guide RNA that matches this sequence, and then two and three. And, and for each one that we target, we, we see um, successive increase in our, in our HDR yields. Um, so we tested this at a variety of different sites. Um, so you can see here in, in pink is just with a primary guide RNA, and then blue is when we use our, our double tap or our secondary guide RNA. Um, and the, the fold increase um, uh, varies a lot, just depending on the sort of initial um, indel introduction efficiency of the indels that we're targeting with our, with our secondary guide RNAs. And so that is, is plotted here. Um, so the y-axis is showing, showing the fold change so that the increase that, that we're getting using um, these secondary guide RNAs. And so you can see over here, some of them, we, we get almost doubling in the amount of HDR products. And then across the x-axis, this is the, the collective indel um, efficiency of the, the indels that, that we're targeting with these secondary guide RNAs. Um, and so you can use this to sort of um, this equation here to estimate what sort of fold increase you might get for, for a given uh, guide RNA that, that you're using. Um, one other thing I want to mention is we also see a decrease in the collective um, indel introduction efficiency, or we call it MHEJ here, is end joining uh, products. Um, these are at a bunch of different sites where we've done um, uh, the, the double tap method. And so in green is the fold increase in the HDR yields. And then in blue is the collective indel introduction efficiency. And you can see that there's a, a decrease in that in varying degrees depending on the site. Um, we also um, did the double tap method and then clonally expanded our cells and, and looked at individual colonies to look at the zygosity of these cells. Um, and so this is particularly important for functional genomic studies if we want to generate an isogenic cell line where we have a mutation of interest. Um, and what I just want to highlight here, so this is, these are, for each of these, we sequenced 41 different clones. Um, this is with just a primary guide RNA. And then over here on the, the right is when we did the double tap method. And so um, right off the bat in this red color on the bottom, this is a, uh, uh, cell lines that are that are homozygous, so we have um, our our SMD of interest introduced on both alleles within the cell. We have a huge increase in the fraction of clones that that are homozygous. And one other thing that I want to note out is this this little bar right here in green. These are our true heterozygous clones, and so it's actually more difficult to get true heterozygous clones than, than homozygous clones using um, uh, double-stranded break mediated genome editing, because what you usually have is one allele, it has been corrected by HDR, so you have your SNP or SNP of interest, and the other allele has an indel on it. Um, and so those are called, those are this HDR indel outcome, and that's this uh, yellow color here. And so you can see we've significantly decreased the, the fraction of clones that are HDR indel products 
And then we have a couple clones here that are true heterozygous. So mutation of interest on one allele and wild type on the other. Um, and so this is, again, super helpful for functional genomic studies where we can generate both homozygous and heterozygous clones um, using this double tap method. And so I want to, to move on to talk about what I call non-traditional genome editing tools. Um, so again, traditional genome editing, this is just because this is how we've done it for many, many years using double-stranded breaks. Um, we, we use, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 now to introduce the double-stranded break. And again, um, we have this, this mixture of uh, precise uh, outcomes as well as indels. Sorry, my monitor shut off for a second, but I'm back. Um, and so I want to switch gears over to base editing, which was um, a method that I developed during my postdoc work um, in 2016, where instead of using double-stranded breaks for, for genome editing, we used different types of DNA damage intermediates um, to introduce point mutations or SNBs with very high efficiency and precision. Um, and so in this, system, I'm showing here the cytosine base editor, or CBE, as an example. Um, there's also an ABE, I'll tell you about that in a second. But so here, instead of using wild type Cas9, which again chops the DNA in half, um, we've catalytically impaired it. Um, so we have, here I'm showing a nickase Cas9. So we, um, we, we still bind using this Watson-Crick-Franklin-based pairing properties, and then we cleave only one strand. There's another type of base editor where we don't cleave either strand as well. I'll tell you about that in a second. Um, but so um, we, we bind and we either don't cleave or we nick. And then up here in red, I'm showing we have um, an enzyme, so a nucleobase modifying enzyme that's directly tethered to the Cas9 protein. Um, and so in the CBE um, example, this is a cytidine deaminase enzyme that is specific for single-stranded DNA only. And so what happens is when Cas9 or guide RNA bind to our genomic DNA, um, you can see the top strand is base paired with the guide RNA, and then the bottom strand doesn't have a base pairing uh, partner anymore. And part of this strand is um, sort of buried and, and uh, protected by the Cas9 protein, but there's about a five nucleotide window down here um, that's, that's open and accessible to this deaminase enzyme. And um, again, since this deaminase is specific for single-stranded DNA, its activity is focused on if there are any cytosines within this five nucleotide window right here. Um, it does uh, cytidine deamination chemistry to convert any cytosines into uracils, which have the base pairing properties of thymine. And then when we're using our nickase base editor, we nick this top strand. And so this sort of flags the top strand as damaged and, and tells the endogenous um, cellular repair pathways to come and fix that top strand. And so um, as it replaces this top strand, it uses the uracil as a template. And overall, we get a GC to AT base pair conversion. Okay. And again, this is done with very high efficiency. So I'm showing up here, our CBE takes CG to TA via a uracil intermediate. Um, we have very low uh, indel introduction efficiencies because we're, we're not directly cleaving the DNA in half. Um, and we also have an adenine-based editor, or ABE, where instead of a cytidine deaminase enzyme, we use uh, an adenosine deaminase enzyme. And so this one takes adenosine to inosine, which has the base pair properties of guanine. So we can take AT to GC, again, with very high efficiencies and very low indel introduction efficiencies. Um, and as I mentioned on the very first slide, um, we're really interested in single nucleotide variants. So with traditional genome editing and double-stranded breaks, we can introduce any type of, of genomic DNA edit that we want. Here, um, we're, um, we can only introduce these two types of Point mutations. But again, these are very, very relevant to human genetics, and so that's very helpful to us. Um, and so one of the first studies that we did in, in my current lab at UCSD um, was to look at the cell cycle dependence of, of base editing. 
And so I, I kind of mentioned it, but um, previously, but so those end joining pathways that that process or double stranded breaks are active throughout the entire cell cycle. Okay. HDR though, which is what we use for precision genome editing with double stranded breaks is only active during late S and G2 phase. Okay, because this is when the cell naturally has a sister chromatid, which it uses as a template. Um, so this is one of the reasons why our HDR yields are very low. Additionally, if you're working with um, cells that are sort of terminally differentiated um, or you know stuck outside and in G1, G0 phase or no longer dividing, um, they actually lack the um, expression of those HDR factors. And it's really, really hard to do precision genome editing using double-stranded breaks in those types of cells. So we don't currently know what DNA repair pathways are processing these base editor intermediates. Um, and so we said, um, okay, well, let's just do an experiment where we chemically synchronize our cells using these small molecules in either uh, late G2M or in late G1 phase, and then do base editing and characterize how the overall um, efficiencies and precision have changed so we can start to understand um, what's going on and, and what pathways are processing these base editor intermediates and how ubiquitous these tools are for genome editing, particularly in you know, non-dividing cells. Um, so first I'll show you the data on our uh, ABE, so the adenine base editing. And um, so I'm going to show you both um, data from our, um, our dead Cas9 ABE as well as our NICase Cas9 ABE. And so um, over here on the right, I'm showing this is our NICase ABE. We just call it ABE because it's the most commonly used base editor. And so again, we're deaminating adenosine to inosine and then nicking this bottom strand. Um, over here on the left, this is going to be data from our dead Cas9 ABE. And so here we're just introducing our inosine and then just allowing the cell to decide, you know, which strand to, um, to replace and, and process to, to give us our, our A to G outcome. Okay. Um, okay, and so up here, this is data A to G editing efficiency on the y-axis at three different genomic loci. Black is cells that are asynchronous, so in all different phases of the cell cycle. And then in purple are cells where we've synchronized them in G1, and in turquoise, these are cells that we synchronized in G2M. Um, and so you can see right off the bat, there is a significant decrease in editing efficiency. So it's over 60% um, on average upon both synchronization conditions. Um, and over here on the right, this is the, the same experiments, but just using the NICACE ABE. And here we see much less of a decrease. In fact, at most sites, it's not even statistically significant um, on, especially in G1, and maybe a slight decrease. Um, and it's a genomic loci, locus specific um, upon G2M synchronization. Um, so this, first of all, it tells us there's an inherent difference in the mechanism by which these two base editor intermediates are processed. Um, and this is, this is a nice indication that um, these decreases that we see over here are due to the synchronization and not due to um, other effects due to using these small molecules since we don't see the same effect over here with the NICASE ABE. Um, and this is really exciting. It shows that um, whatever pathways are processing these NICASE uh, base editor intermediates are, are quite ubiquitous and active throughout the cell cycle. So I'm going to show you the same data here, but for our, our cytosine-based editor. So again, on the left is our, our dead Cas9 editor, where we're just taking cytosine to uracil. And then on the right, we're going to have our NICase, where we're taking cytosine to uracil and nicking the bottom strand. Um, and what we saw was pretty much the same thing, even though we're using a uracil rather than an inosine intermediate, but with our dead Cas9 base editor, we see huge decreases in editing efficiency um, upon synchronization in either G1 or G2M, and we don't see the same decrease when we're using our NICASE base editor, you can see here. Um, and so, again, the same conclusion, our, our NICASE cytosine base editor 
um, looks to be um, like it relies on fairly ubiquitous processes. Um, and our, our dead Cas9 editor is not. Um, but again, most labs do use this, this NIC, the NICA space editors because they, they have higher efficiency. And now we can see that they're much more uh, ubiquitous. Um, so finally, I want to talk briefly about um, the precision of a base editing, um, especially with our cytosine base editor. We found that, um, so this uracil intermediate, um, uracil is a very common type of DNA damage. Um, and so the cell has natural defense systems against uracils. Um, and in fact, so this enzyme, UNG, stands for uracil and glycosylase. So it is a glycosylase enzyme that finds uracils and cleaves them out and can give an abasic site. And so we found that um, following UNG-mediated uracil excision, um, we see uh, C to non-T editing outcomes. Okay, so we see C, um, CG to GC and CG to AT base editing outcomes. Um, and if we knock out UNG, this phenomenon goes away completely. Um, so we know it's definitely initiated by this enzyme. And um, as a result, we use this, this UGI, it's a short peptide that stands for uracil glycosylase inhibitor, which binds to UNG and prevents it from, from excising uracil. Um, and so this peptide is, is included in all of our, our CBE constructs. Um, and so over here, so this is CBE with, again, we have this UGI appended onto our CBE. And this is editing precision shown at three different sites where I'm just looking at editing outcomes. So um, instances in which our CG base pair was edited to any other base. And this is showing the fraction that's due to a C to T edit, which is what we want, versus a C to G and a C to A edit, okay? Um, and so you can see that um, the C to non-T editing outcomes are quite low, but this is because we're inhibiting UNG. If we get rid of that UGI component, we just omit it from our construct, so that's what this delta UGI here means, um, you can see that there's there's really, really high levels of C to non-T editing. And in particular, you know, a large fraction, especially at this locus here, is due to C to G editing. You can see here too, and then a little bit of, of C to A editing down here. And so we, we repeated all of our synchronization experiments using this CBE delta UGI construct. So here is that same data um, just shown spread out. Um, and, and so again, yeah, we synchronized the cells in either G1 or G2M and then looked at how this sort of distribution or this cytosine base editing precision changed with respect to the cell cycle. Um, and so here, this is when we synchronized in G1, we actually saw a huge increase in the fraction of edits that were due to a C to A outcome. So you can see the black bars has increased significantly. Um, and, and so this was over, you know, seven-fold increase in the sort of fractional editing due to C to A editing. Um, and then during uh, when the cells are synchronized in G2M, if you compare the, the bars that have the black dot versus the turquoise, um, we actually, we didn't see any change at all. So that was, was the same. Um, but so we took, you know, these, um, these, um, the sample where we were synchronized in G1. And so again, as I'm showing here, this is sort of normalized to overall editing yield. But so down here, what I'm showing broken down by site is just the absolute editing efficiency um, due to C to A, C to G, or C to T editing. And so um, what you can see is that the C to G editing yields decreased um, a little bit in both of the synchronization conditions. What was really striking was this huge increase in C to A editing, um, even at just at the absolute level um, during G1 synchronization. Um, and we repeated this at a variety of additional sites. And again, we're seeing the same phenomenon, even at sites like HEC2 over here, where um, in asynchronous cells, we see barely any C to A editing efficiency at all. Um, we get a huge boost. Um, you can see up to 20%. Um, of, of C to A editing yields, which is really quite interesting. 
And um, we're trying to understand what repair factors are, are involved in this so we can, you know, potentially engineer a, a precise C to A editing base editor um, that is based off of the, the basic CBE architecture. Um, okay, so bringing us back to, to this slide here, I just again want to remind everyone that each individual has a very unique combination of, of mutations in them. And we believe that this is why our, um, you know, currently we have this huge uh, interpretation problem in the field because the way that we're looking at genetic variants is in isolation. Um, so just introducing, you know, this variant into cell lines of interest at a time and looking at what it does. And, um, you know, depending on the presence or absence of additional genetic variants in that cell, it might have different impacts. Um, and so, um, we, we use base editing to introduce genetic variants all the time, but, you know, we said, let's, let's bump that up a little bit. Let's start to multiplex base editors and let's start to introduce multiple genetic variants at a time um, to, to better understand how these impact our health. Um, okay, so um, obviously one of the ways that we can do this is with double-stranded break mediated editing. Um, and so I reminded you of the, the mechanism over here. But if we attempt to multiplex, so you know, introduce one single nucleotide variant over here in the genome and another somewhere else, um, and then try to get you know, a cell line that has both variants introduced at once, um, given the low efficiency of just introducing one of those at a time, um, this is uh, exacerbated when we're attempting to multiplex and introduce two or three or even four. Um, so overall, you know, as I showed you, even with double tap, um, our introduction efficiencies are, are, you know, on the order of 10% or less um, for just one at a time. And so that, again, is sort of additive um, or multiplicative if, if we're trying to, to introduce multiple um, all over the genome. Uh, furthermore, um, let's say we're trying to multiplex um, these two sites and they are within the same chromosome. Um, we can actually get deletion or inversion of the region in between the two double stranded breaks. So you can get large deletions or inversions when we're multiplexing within one chromosome. If we try to multiplex across two chromosomes, we can start to get really strange rearrangements where what I'm going to show you over here is that this top chunk of chromosome four actually got put over onto the top of chromosome three and vice versa. Um, so we can get these really large scale chromosomal rearrangements and translocations um, when multiplexing at different chromosomes. Um, and then finally, um, we have a huge increase in cytotoxicity when we're introducing lots of double-stranded breaks because these are among the most cytotoxic of all the types of DNA damage. Um, so, um, multiplexing point mutation introduction with double stranded breaks is kind of a no-go. We don't want to do it, but um, base editors are actually really uniquely situated to, for multiplexing because um, our intermediates are much less cytotoxic, our um, introduction efficiencies are much higher. If you noticed on the previous slides when I was talking about the synchronization data, our introduction efficiencies were around 60%. That's really high, and so um, you can imagine that we might be able to generate these cell lines with multiple point mutations introduced uh, using base editors. Um, and, and people have done that um, using just a single base editor at a time, so just a CBE or just an ABE. Um, but we, what we wanted to do was um, introduce, say, a C to T edit over here in the, the red protospacer, and then an A to G edit over here on the blue protospacer. Um, and um, unfortunately, the current way that, that you do this, if you use nucleic acid-based delivery, so either plasmid or mRNA, um, the cell will, will translate your, your base editor proteins, um, and then you'll get your, your base editor guide RNAs. And so this one here, the one in red, that encodes for the location of where we want to do our C to T editing, and then same for blue, but our A to G editing. 
Um, and so again, within the cell, there's all of these, these four different molecules and um, we'll get complexation of our CBE guide RNA with our CBE protein, which is great, and same with ABE. But there's nothing to stop our uh, ABE protein from complexing with our CBE guide RNA and, and vice versa. And so what happens here is that um, we'll get both our CBE and our ABE editors binding at both target sites. And if we happen to have both a C and an A within that canonical base editing window, um, we're going to get both C to T and A to G editing at both sites. Um, and so this I'm kind of showing in pictorial representation of um, the different editing outcomes. So this sort of orthogonal multiplex edit is what we want. We want just C to T editing at the CBE target and just a to G editing and our ABE target. Um, but what we're going to get additionally are what, what these are called crosstalk editings. Okay. So um, again, our, our guide RNA is just complexing with any Cas9 protein within the cell. Um, and so we get, you know, both C to T and A to G editing at, at both sites, potentially, and then all sorts of mixtures um, as well. Um, okay. So this was work done by, by Quinn, shown here. He said, okay, how can we make multiplex base editing orthogonal? Okay, how can we get rid of that crosstalk issue? Um, and so he decided to take the enzyme, so the deaminase enzyme that does the nucleobase chemistry, and um, instead of directly fusing it to the Cas9 protein, which can complex with either guide RNA, um, he thought, okay, well, let's directly tether it to the guide RNA, which encodes for the location of interest. And so he did this using aptamer coat protein interactions. And so these aptamers are, are short RNA sequences that fold up into very specific tertiary structures. And then they have um, a coat protein, um, which is a short peptide that binds very tightly to that aptamer motif. Um, and so what he did was he took the aptamer, and there's a bunch of different um, aptamer coat protein combinations that are all inherently orthogonal to each other because they come from different uh, phages. And, um, and he'll take, let's say, um, one aptamer and he'll, he tried embedding it at a, a couple of different sites within the guide RNA where uh, we can put a new sequence in and it won't impact um, Cas9 uh, binding and complexation with that guide RNA. Um, and so you can see over here, we have an, an orange aptamer and just showing at the, the embedding it at the three prime end, but again, we can also embed it at these other sites. Um, and then a second one that's just inherently orthogonal to this one, we can embed in, in our ABE guide RNA. Okay. Um, and then we would fuse our deaminase to the appropriate coat protein. So that's what the CP stands for is coat protein. Um, and so the coat protein portion of this fusion will bind very tightly and orthogonal to its aptamer. Um, and then now we have our, our, our deaminase, which does the chemistry, um, is fused directly to our guide RNA that encodes for the location of interest. So now we just add a nickase Cas9 protein, and it will complex with both guide RNAs. But again, that's fine because, um, because of these aptamers, um, our, our cyclene deaminase is only going to, to complex with our, our CBE encoding uh, protospacer guide RNA. Okay. And again, this green protein will not bind to this orange aptamer and vice versa. Um, okay. And so now in theory, we would have orthogonal editing where we would only have our adenosine deaminase enzyme at our ABE target and, and same with the, the CBE. Okay, so first we had to engineer these aptamer systems that, that could work and be efficient. Um, so here I'm showing Quinn engineered um, this uh, ABE guide RNA um, by taking a couple of different aptamers and embedding in at these three sites within the guide RNA. Um, and then he combined this with appropriate um, uh, adenine deaminase coat protein fusion, so different uh, linkers between the coat protein and the deaminase and different orientations, so C-terminal and N-terminal. 
Um, and so this is just the name of our adenosine deaminase. It's called TADA star. Um, and here I'm showing editing efficiency across two different sites. So that's the X and the Y axis. And these are just different um, fusion constructs. And um, you can see he did significant engineering efforts, um, tested them all at, at two different sites to see um, how kind of universally efficient they were. And then he came up with these two winners. Um, and so we're labeling them as Optimer uh, ABE8E and then Optimer ABE820, just based on the, the TAD A mutant that we used. Okay. Um, so he did the same thing with CBE. Uh, previous labs had engineered CBE optimer um, fusion constructs, so um, his engineering efforts on, on this one weren't as extensive. Um, but again, he tried this, this MS2 optimer um, in these three different sites, and then a bunch of different um, architectures and linkers with the, um, the APOBEC is the, the cytidine deaminase enzyme. Um, and then, you know, our, our UGI important construct or component of our construct and then the, the, the appropriate coat protein. Um, and so here he actually characterized um, these constructs at, at three additional sites as well. So beyond just this, this HEC3 and RNF2, which I've shown here. Um, and that's what made him um, choose the, the, the pink and the purple one that I've highlighted here. Um, and so these we've just named Optimer CBE1 and 2. They use the same deaminase, um, unlike the ABE constructs, but just different uh, architectures. Um, okay, so with those architectures in hand, he then went to characterize them and see if they were indeed orthogonal. Um, and so we named these constructs um, multiplexed orthogonal base editors, or MOBIs. Um, and what I'm going to show here is on the same graph, I'm going to show, I'm showing both the on-target and the crosstalk editing efficiencies. Okay, so um, we're doing editing at both a CBE and an ABE target. Um, and so the y-axis is showing the ABE target and um, the x-axis is showing the CBE target. These are the parental systems in gray, so the non-orthogonal original systems. So we're multiplexing um, in dark gray um, a particular CBE that's called EVOBE4, and then an ABE called ABE8E. Um, and then in light gray, it's just a different ABE that we're multiplexing with the same CBE construct. Um, but so the open circles is the on-target editing efficiency that we want. And so you can see with the, the dark gray one, we have around 35% A to G editing at our ABE target and about 12% C to T editing at our CBE target, okay, which is not bad. Um, we then go to the dark gray with the cross through it. And so this is the crosstalk editing efficiency. So if we go over here and we see this is about 22% C to T editing efficiency at our ABE target um, and just under 20% uh, A to G editing at our CBE target, okay? Um, so not great, all right? We have very high crosstalk editing. Um, and, and again, over here, this is just another target, so I can show you that, that we have characterized this at a variety of different sites. Um, and we made four MOBI systems since we had two CBE optimers and two ABE optimers. So we combined um, both two and two to get four MOBI sites. And so these are gonna be shown um, in these colored dots. And um, we found that the on-target editing efficiency of our MOBIs was on par um, with the on-target editing of our parental systems, which was great. Um, but was really, really awesome is that the crosstalk editing is significantly decreased. Um, and so you can see here, we have to zoom in to see it. Um, it's around, you know, less than 2% crosstalk editing at this target site combination and less than 1% at this one, uh, which was really exciting to see. Um, we quantified this sort of um, orthogonality um, with these orthogonality scores. And so for each system, we have both a CBE and ABE orthogonality score. And so um, what the, the CBE orthogonality score, for example, 
is um, the on-target C to T editing efficiency divided by the crosstalk C to T editing efficiency. Okay, um, and same thing for ABE. Um, and so what I want to show here, we take the log two of this orthogonality score and we plot it here at six different site combinations. Um, this dotted line is, is zero. That would be sort of equivalent on target to crosstalk editing efficiency. Um, and you can see all of our parental systems, or many of our, our parental systems at, at many of these site combinations cluster around there because there's no reason for the ABE to just edit at the ABE target and vice versa. And all of our MOBIs have significantly increased orthogonality scores compared to the parental systems, which was great to see. Um, additionally, we, uh, we wanted to boost our on-target editing efficiency, so we developed this fluorescent reporter where we simply just throw in an extra plasmid. Um, this has um, both ABE and CBE um, MOBI guide RNAs in it that um, take our MOBIs and target them to this uh, GFP gene where we've mutated it in two spots, so we require both a to G and C to T orthogonal editing to get GFP turn on. Um, and then we additionally have our, our genomic targeted uh, guide RNAs in there as well. Um, and even though we're enriching for uh, plasmid editing, we actually still see a huge increase in, in editing at the, um, the endogenous genomic loci as well. Um, okay, so we sort for, for GFP signal. Um, and then we looked at editing, and so you can see here now we've got around you know 60 and 35 percent editing efficiency, um, and our, our crosstalk editing is still quite low. Um, and okay, over here I'm just quantifying the fold increase in on-target editing that we see, um, which is for the four different MOBI systems. We tested this at a bunch of different sites, um, so you can see that there. Um, and then here's the orthogonality scores. We didn't see any decrease in orthogonality score either, which was really great to see. Um, one other thing that I will show you is that um, we quantified um, orthogonal co-occurring edits. So here we're doing editing at a CBE and ABE target that are close enough together where we can use high throughput sequencing to look at the percent of, um, of DNA sequencing reads in which we have just a C to T edit at the CBE target and an A to G edit at the ABE target within the same DNA read, okay? Um, and so here's two different sites where we're doing editing. And so we have, you know, parental system over here in the unenriched samples. And then over here enriched just means we use that fluorescent reporter um, to uh, sort away the GFP positive cells. And um, over here, we've quantified the percent of DNA sequencing reads with, um, with co-occurring orthogonal edits. And so even though our parental systems have high on-target editing efficiency, um, the majority of those sequences in which we have a co-occurring C to T and A to G edit also have crosstalk editing within the same DNA strand. And so that's why these numbers are so low. Um, our MOBI3 system, you can see it's around two and a half percent have orthogonal co-occurring edits in bulk. And then when we use our fluorescent reporter, we can get almost up to 15%, which is really great. Okay, so In the last couple minutes, I just want to talk about some of the artifacts that was what I kind of you know, opened the talk uh, mentioning. Um, and so this is some work done by, by Carlos Vasquez in the lab, um, who is looking at mutations in this gene that's responsible for protecting our, our genome from oxidative DNA damage. Um, and so what happens is if we're exposed to reactive oxygen species, um, guanines in our DNA will get oxidized to 8-oxoguanine. Um, and then what happens is this um, oxidized base can flip orientation into a Hoogstein orientation and improperly mispair with adenine. Um, and so overall, what happens is if you have high reactive oxygen species, you can get 
G to T uh, point mutations throughout your genome, which are really bad. You can eventually, they occur in um, oncogenes, and this results in cancer. Okay. Um, and so in particular, MUTE-YH is the protein that recognizes 8-OXO-G when it's mispaired with an adenine, and it will rip out the adenine, and then downstream repair uh, proteins will replace the adenine with the cytosine, um, and then another gene, or uh, Repair protein will then um, rip out the 8-oxo gene and replace it with a guanine. Um, okay, so MUTE-YH, um, mutations in it are associated with uh, colon cancer, or MUTE-YH-associated polyposis map. Um, and if we look at the breakdown, um, many mutations in this gene have been identified in individuals and classified as a variant of uncertain significance, or VUS. Um, and so what Carlos is doing is he has been generating isogenic cell lines harboring different uh, mutations in MUTE-YH and then characterizing how this impacts the function of the protein, okay? And so remember that it's responsible for recognizing and repairing 8-OXO-GA mismatches. Um, so Carlos and then Quinn again, the, the guy who, who did all the MOBI work, um, they generated this, this current protocols paper a little while ago on how they generate isogenic cell lines using base editors. Um, and so here they have a, a GFP that just shows uh, base editor expression. Um, and so they'll design a guide RNA to introduce a mutation of interest, pair it up with a particular base editor, transfect that into cells, and then quantify editing efficiency in bulk. So here, we're trying to introduce a T to C mutation uh, by mutating the A that's base paired with the T using an ABE. And you can see in bulk here, we have around 30% um, editing efficiency or so with the base header, which is good enough to, um, to go on and generate the isogenic cell lines. So they repeat the experiment, and this time they, um, they take individual GFP positive cells and um, plate them in, in separate wells of a 96-well plate to clonally expand them and generate isogenic cell lines. Um, uh, again, this, this current protocols paper has this in excruciating detail if you're interested in doing this in your own lab. Um, we typically, one plate will yield around eight clones. And when we sequence them, um, when, when our initial introduction efficiency is, is here, we'll see about 50% of the clones are our wild type, so unedited. We'll get about 25% are heterozygous and about 25% are homozygous, okay? Um, and again, remember when I talked about um, using double strata breaks and HDR, it's really, really, really hard to get these heterozygous clones. Um, and it's also pretty difficult to, to get homozygous clones as well. Um, but um, again, with, with base editing, because it's so clean, our indel introduction efficiencies are quite low, um, we, we can typically get the cell lines that we need by only screening a handful of clones, which is really great. Um, okay, and so just the last little bit of data before I, I say goodbye and take questions. Um, Carlos generated this really amazing fluorescent reporter for, uh, for MUTE-YH activity. And so he uses some uh, chemical biology and molecular biology techniques to site-specifically incorporate an 8-OXO-GA mismatch um, into a plasmid in the middle of the GFP gene. Um, and this is incorporated in such a way that when we transfect this plasmid into cells, um, if they are unable to repair this, Okay, so if they have this A on the template strand that the um, transcriptional machinery is reading, um, we, we, we have a premature stop codon in the GFP gene, and so we only see M-cherry fluorescence, which is upstream of GFP. Okay. However, if we get repair of the A opposite the guanine into a C, so that was MUTE-YH's responsibility, um, and so we have a C in our template strand now. Um, this restores GFP fluorescence. And so here you can see there's both M-cherry and GFP fluorescence. And so we read this out on the flow cytometer. Um, and so you can see that um, in this case, we have just M-cherry, so all of the cells, um, they have M-cherry fluorescence and not GFP fluorescence. Um, so no mu-YH activity. 
um, versus if we are repairing that 8-oxo-GA mismatch, um, we see the cells kind of have this pattern here where they're going sort of diagonally up the, the flow cytometry plot. Um, okay, so taking this exact reporter with the 8-oxo-GA mismatch and transfecting it into wild-type cells, um, again, we see a large percentage of cells in this quadrant here because um, UIH is active and it's able to repair that. Um, if we test this in a uh, heterozygous cell line that has a, a P295L mutation, which is a known uh, pathogenic mutant, um, we actually see that the cells are fine. Um, but if we do the same experiment in um, the homozygous cell line, we now see that most of our cells are actually clustered in this quadrant here where we only have M-cherry fluorescence and no GFP fluorescence. Um, and if we relate this back to MAP, so BYH-associated polyposis, um, it's actually known that um, patients who have MAP always have homozygous mutations in this gene. Um, so these cell lines here are recapitulating um, that clinical phenotype um, when we're just you know, measuring direct enzymatic activity of the protein, which is pretty exciting. And so with that, I will wrap up. Um, I just want to thank all of my wonderful students in, in the lab who are doing really great work and who make um, you know, coming into work every day just super wonderful. Um, and um, find us on Twitter. This is our Twitter handle. Um, thank uh, these guys for funding. And thank you all for listening. And um, I'd be happy to take any questions. Hello. Uh, well, thank you, Alexis, for a fantastic talk. A huge amount of uh, information there, some really exciting new techniques. Uh, we've got a few questions. Um, this one's from me. So you highlighted your um, maps at the start about you know, single nucleotide variants um, and you know, how they can be pathogenic. Do you think some of these enrichment techniques, such as the G1 synchronization for the C2A conversion, would they be tractable in the clinic as well, do you think? That I'm not sure we would want to do, um, especially right now. So we can do it with a couple of small molecules that will synchronize the cell. But, but generally, you know, these small molecules, they do a lot of additional things beyond just G1 synchronization. Um, and the, the act of synchronizing in G1 and holding them in G1 for so long is really not good for the, the health of the cell. So um, I wouldn't recommend it, but we're kind of, we're thinking about other strategies that that don't involve like manipulating the cell so much, but more, um, yeah, potentially manipulating like the DNA repair pathways or um, manipulating like when the base editor is expressed within the cell um, that might be able to to be more more therapeutically relevant. But currently, yeah, using G1 synchronization agents, I would say hold off on that and just use for research applications. Um, and apologies if I got this wrong, but most work performed in HEC-293 cells? Um, I think so. All the data that I showed was for, for HEC cells because the editing efficiency is highest, because the transfection efficiency is, is just much higher. Um, but for, for all the experiments that we've done, we've also done um, in at least like HeLa and K562s. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the MOBI system, we're, we're moving to more... Um, uh, less like immortalized cell lines, more kind of clinically relevant cell lines. Yeah, so these techniques, you know, obviously uh, they're all tractable into different cell types then? So far, all the cell types that we've used, but they have been like limited. Um, so like iPSC cell work, we haven't really done yet, but um, we have some collaborators that we're hoping to kind of move into yeah. those systems with. Um, and I really enjoyed the uh, the Aptima chemistry for the, you know, for the recruitment of the different base editors. Could that be adapted for CRISPR-A and CRISPR-A uh, kind of technologies as well to uh, multiplex for gene activation and gene repression in the same cell? Yeah, so it definitely has been used for CRISPR activation, I believe. Um, for for CRISPR-I, maybe not, but um, it, it's something that we're thinking about, including like prime editing too. Um, just so, yeah, you can multiplex, you know, whatever various techniques you want to do. And um, currently, there there are 
four known optimer coat protein systems that are all sort of, they're all, I think they're all, yeah, natural from phage and they're all um, orthogonal to each other. Um, but then there are, you know, additional techniques like Celex where you can engineer new systems that, you know, to expand that, that toolbox even further. But yeah, in theory, you could, um, you know, we have like CBE, ABE, I know there's, there's a CRISPR-A system too. And so you could, in theory, yeah, multiplex all three currently. Um, and they seem to be quite portable. So um, it just takes, you know, a while and a bunch of engineering efforts to, to get the, a new system up and running. Um, I think we've got time for one more question. Um, how does double tap compare to other methods for improving that ratio of HDR over NHEJ, you know, things like small molecule inhibitors and so forth? Yeah, so um, I, I didn't have time to talk about this, but we did compare it to a couple of those methods. We also combined it with some of those methods. And um, and what's cool is that so you can you can combine it with like the the correct method where you're using blocking mutations. And then I think um, this we we use a small molecule cocktail from IDT. I think it's yeah. the Alt R. Um, and um, and so yeah, we can combine the two and get an even larger boost in in HDR yields and an even larger decrease in NHEJ yields. Um, and then additionally, one of the Cas9 DNA repair factor fusions, um, we we combined with that too. And so. Um, Overall, we get, it, it also depends on the site. So you need a good site that has like one indel that's introduced with really high efficiency. Um, and, and in that case, you know, we get almost a, a doubling or a tripling sometimes in, in HDR. Um, and, and so the, the sort of overall HDR yield is, is much higher. Um, and then we get a small decrease in, in an HEJ. Um, and so some of these other things, like especially that Altar cocktail can really bring down um, the, the indel um, efficiency. But I think it's potentially there's like a delay or something, um, which is why we can still get an additional boost with our double tap when combining it with that. So maybe like we get some early indels before the small molecule has, has truly had a chance to do its thing. And then those we convert um, into to, uh, HDR products. Um, but so yeah, it compares quite favorably. We have a there's a big figure in in the paper that that shows um, the comparison with those, and then we also combined it, and then you get even you know a larger synergistic effect as well, which is really nice. Fantastic. Uh, well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the talk, and uh, that brings to the end of this keynote talk. We hope you enjoyed this episode of listening from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the listening series, please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on web skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.